Now, if you flip back to Job 2, just for a moment, you'll, I just want to remind you that the three friends that we've been hearing from, when they, they heard Job 2.11, when Job's three friends heard of all the adversity that had come upon him. So we concluded when we were studying Job chapter 2 that the story of Job, his adversity and sufferings, the calamity that had happened in his life was broadcast uh, far and wide. If we could imagine a modern setting, it would have been on all the news reports in the magazines, uh, in the Christian newsletters that you get, or whatever, that Job's whole life had become a disaster. And I would imagine that if it was in a modern setting, people would be making all kinds of conclusions as to why. See, we are quick to jump on that particular mindset and think, well, somebody, he must have done something wrong. That's why his life is a disaster. And sometimes that is true. Sometimes, you know, we've met the enemy and it is us and we've shot ourselves in the foot and we've got to live with some of those consequences and God is still gracious in those times. But they had heard about it. So that tells us that there were people, many people talking about it. It was uh, talk in the caravans. And when they heard of this adversity, they came, each one from his own place, there's the three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite. He, remember, he's the shortest guy in the Bible. Bildad, the Shuhite. And, uh, anyway, and Zophar, the Namathite. And they made an appointment together. What was their goal? To come to sympathize with him and comfort him. We're talking about true comfort tonight. Turn all the way back to Job chapter 16. The original intent of the friends was to come and sympathize and comfort him. How widely did they miss the mark? I mean, they, they have gotten to a point where it's so bad, the communication between the three friends and Job is so bad that they're basically in a name-calling match now. They have come to what we might call an impasse. They have to agree to disagree. And here's the essence of the problem. If you're new to this study, let me just set it before you. The three friends believe that the only explanation for Job's calamity, that his whole household, his, all of his children have died, his wife has cursed him, he's lost everything, his health is in a shambles, he looks like he's the walking dead. The only explanation is that Job must have sinned against God and he must repent. And so for multiple chapters now, we've been hearing them and they start a little soft and they're getting harder and less patient with him and even angry with him. And he continues to say, I haven't sinned. My hands are pure. Job is not saying he's sinless. He's not saying he's perfect. He's just saying, I cannot find anything that I've done that would give reason for God to open the floodgates in my life. And so what they intended to achieve, Job's comfort, was supplanted by pain. If you look at the opening verses in chapter 16, you'll note that Job answered, he answered one of their speeches, and he said, I've heard many such things. And then he said, sorry, all the other translations say, miserable comforters are you all. Miserable comforters. Their goal was to comfort him. That what they achieved was just the opposite. Isn't it kind of oxymoronic to say you're a miserable comforter? 
That's an oxymoron. If you're trying to bring comfort to somebody, you shouldn't be miserable at it. Somebody might say, you're not very good at this. You could do better. You're, you're, you're not a great comforter, but you're okay. But to call somebody a miserable comforter, it's like it would have been better had you just never showed up. Sorry, comforters are you all. So I asked the question as I was thinking about God's word and praying about this message that I would bring to you tonight, what does true comfort look like? What should they have done? Why did they miss the mark? Here's one uh, thing I just put before you for those of you who are considering these things or taking notes, is they, their worldview would not allow them to entertain any other uh, reason for Job's suffering. Sometimes we have made conclusions about life that are not based on the word of God, but based on what we've heard from others or past experiences that we've had that we now package into truth. And we must be very careful. Because if we use subjective life experience, which sometimes can be helpful if it's another layer that, that uh, is in concert with the Word of God and is just frosting on the cake of the Word of God, that can be helpful. Hey, I went through this and here's what God did and this matches this Bible verse. But if my subjective experience becomes now or what I believe about the world or I believe about religion becomes what I tell everybody. So let's say that you have a friend who's in a difficult spot, their marriage is in trouble or something like that, and instead of going to the Word of God, you use your experience. Well, your experience could be helpful, but not if it contradicts God's word. Are you with me? There's a lot of people inside and outside the church who will find the book or the, the talk they're looking for, but the question is, is it God's truth? And these men could not bring themselves to bring comfort to Job because their worldview was not a biblical worldview. They could not fathom that sometimes God can and does allow suffering in our lives, not for any other reason than he's going to use it for his purposes. Do you know that one of the purposes that God may use if he allows suffering in your lives or one of the uh, things he may be trying to accomplish is to make you more like Jesus. And that's maybe not something that you've considered before. I actually heard Charles Stanley say that earlier on a broadcast that remember God is conforming us into the image of his son and often, you know, I don't know how the percentages break down, but God will use suffering to shape us more into the image of Jesus. Because suffering drives me to God. And when I'm doing really good and I can just kind of put it in cruise control and I, I know my routines and I know how to get this done and that done, that doesn't always drive me to God. Now, I'm not saying that God has some pleasure in our suffering, but God is trying to accomplish something and that is to make us more like Jesus. When Nehemiah was uh, 
listening to the report about the destruction of his homeland in Jerusalem, the capital, uh, he was inquiring and he wanted to rebuild the walls. And you remember that story in the book of Nehemiah. It's a story about leadership, but it starts with a man who was not a priest, he was not a prophet, he was not a professional minister. He was the cupbearer of the king, but he had a burden for that land. And it's interesting, if you ever studied the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's name means, get this, Yahweh comforts. And when Nehemiah heard about the broken walls in Jerusalem that had been laying there in rubble for years, he was the man that decided to repair the walls, to bring comfort, if you will, to the area. And one of the things that you and I can do as we preach the gospel, the ultimate medicine for the soul is the gospel. Would you agree? The good news that there's hope in Jesus Christ, no matter what you go through, good times, bad times, in life and death, and so this is what God wants to do in our lives. I asked this question in my notes. Did these men ever stop once to pray for Job? Have you studied the book with us all the way from the beginning? Have you heard them once say, Job, let's pray? Maybe a prayer like this. Father, we don't know what's going on. We don't know why this is happening to Job. You know why we don't. But we're praying that you would reveal what you're doing and you would comfort our brother. How's that for a different approach to what these guys were doing? They were trying to do it all with their ideas. Oh, this must have happened. This must have happened. And in James chapter 1, many of you know these verses. It says, we are to count it all joy, brethren, when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And James goes on to say, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That's James 1.5, who gives to all men liberally. Now, when we come to God and we ask for wisdom, the, the flow of the context in James 1 is you're in a trial and you don't know what's going on and you say to God, Father, I don't know what you're doing, whether it's your trial or somebody else's. Would you give me understanding? Would you help me to learn what you're trying to say to me in this trial? so that I can become more like Jesus. I think Job's friends would have done much better had they done that. Job says to them, after he calls them miserable comforters, verse three, he says, is there no limit to your windy, to windy words? <laughs> you guys are a bunch of windbags. A windy word here is the idea of a bunch of hot air, and it can speak of eloquence with no content. It can speak of one who speaks well, but has no substance. You could put it this way. They have a whole lot to say, but nothing is truly helpful. If you ever uh, have insomnia, turn on late night television, you can pretty much get a whole host of this, and you can make three easy payments for $29.99. Some of you have done it, haven't you? <laughs> Improve this, you can do this, you can do that. Three easy payments. Easy payments because you're making them and they're not, right? And they're selling all of this stuff and there's a lot of words. There's a lot of people talking. But the question is, is there any substance? There's been a lot of talk going on from Job's friends and Job says, is there no limit to your hurricane of hurt? You old windbags, they said, you're full of hot air, Job said. No, you're full of hot air. No, you are, no, you are. We can give counsel, 
but we want to make sure our answers and counsel are in keeping with God's word because God's word has substance to bring true change. I can pontificate all day long about my opinions on what you should do, but if I point you to God's everlasting word, I know that that has substance and layers. Job, in essence, says to them, why do you keep going there? What plagues you that you answer? Uh, one uh, rendering of this is what irritates you that you answer. Why, why are you answering this way? It must be something about you. You could put it this way. What provokes or ails you that you answer? Sometimes, I think this is what's here in the text. Think about it with me. Sometimes we give somebody an answer, but the answer's not about them and God. It's more about us. How so, you might ask. Well, if we give an opinion to somebody or we've had an experience over here and we're angry about something, we say, oh yeah, yeah, this is what you should do and here's why. And it's because we've had a negative experience with something. So we bring our anger or our wrath or our bitterness or our unresolved issues to the table. And we don't give them God's truth. Well, if that's what drives us, then we're going to probably lead them astray. A worldview will cripple you if it doesn't allow for righteous suffering. And I've been telling you this, and, and I'm not telling you this because I take pleasure in it, but... I will put it before you again. There is a whole movement in professing Christianity that says that you should never suffer, you should never be sick, you should always be wealthy, you should always be healthy. If you have enough faith, all of these things will happen. And that is just false. In fact, some of these teachers, I've heard them mock Job and the book of Job and say that's ridiculous Job is calling God a fool. Direct quote from a word faith teacher. I'm sorry, sir, but you don't understand your Bible. Because God did not, Job was not calling God a fool, nor was God down on Job. God was lauding Job. He was saying, consider my servant Job. There's nobody like this man. God was speaking well of Job. Be careful that you don't have to force your, here's what I'm talking about, you have to force your view on the book of Job because it doesn't fit with what you've been selling to the masses in word faith theology. Is everybody with me? Now, I'm not saying that everything these teachers say is false, but you have to be careful that they don't make an all or nothing statement. So now you're suffering and you can't, Find anything that was amiss in your life and now you're thinking, what did I do wrong? Why is God mad, God mad at me? Uh, maybe I didn't push the right lever or I didn't pray the right way or I, didn't, I don't have enough faith. And usually these teachers make it all your fault so they can never be wrong. This is the tragedy of wrong doctrine that's out there. Job says, I too, verse four, could speak like you if I were in your place. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. I could do what you're doing. It's easy to shake your head at someone when they're down and think you know why they're in the position they're in. Have you ever done that? Have you ever shook your head at someone, whether literally or metaphorically? Someone was behaving in a certain way. Maybe something was going amiss. Maybe you're like, why did they act that way? What's their problem? 
and then a couple days later, you were doing the exact same thing. <laughs> Anybody ever done that before? And you go, oh, oh. That's the very thing I was looking at that person going, oh, so sad. Look at how they act. Look at that lack of humility. Look at them arguing over such stupid little silly petty things. They're not very spiritual. Two days later, why did that person drive faster? I'm doing it now. You see, it is easy to shake our head at others, wonder why they can't get it together because we're not walking in their moccasins. We're not in their shoes. If the shoe were on the other foot, if the tables were turned, what would you do? And how would you want someone to talk to you? This is what Job is saying. How would you want someone to talk to you if you were me right now and you had the boils from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head? What, how would you want someone to come to you? If we changed positions for a moment and you never know what could happen from one day to the next, right? Well, how would you want that to go? What would you want me to say to you? Well, I think you've sinned against God and you're just a miserable, terrible person, obviously. And the reason that you're, the house crashed in on your children and you lost all your stuff is because you're a dirty, rotten sinner. Comforting, huh? No, I think not. See, the Bible encourages us to get the facts first. Let every fact be confirmed. Jesus said that in Matthew 18, 16 in regard to church discipline. Okay, if your brother doesn't listen to you, then take two or three others with you. That every fact may be confirmed. Did you hear that? Every fact, not speculation. Sometimes we hear something and we start speculating or we join in with the speculators. Oh, this probably happened because of this. And there are shows just to gossip about it. Oh, did you hear? Here's the top five stories that we can all gossip together about. Yeah! It was all excited at other people's misery. People jump on that train so quickly. Job said, I could have been like you. Or, five, I could strengthen you with my words. And the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. If indeed we have a friend who is hurting, whatever may be going on in their lives, I think our goal would bring, be to strengthen them with our mouth and bring solace with our lips and lessen their pain. Listen to, this is the New Living Translation of these first verses two through five. He said, I've heard all this before, what miserable comforters you are. Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep on talking? <laughs> I could say the same things if you were in my place. I could spout off criticism and shake my head at you. But if it were me, I would encourage you. I would try to take away your grief. Do you all turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1? All the way in your New Testament. The Apostle Paul uh, went through all of this suffering to try to reach out to people. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And he gives us a little formula here. Uh, which is kind of encased in his own personal sufferings. And he begins to praise the Lord in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, saying these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the Father of mercy, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and God of what? He's the God of all comfort. 
who comforts us, God does, in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Everybody take a peek at verse 4. God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I hope you can see that God wants to make you a vessel of comfort. One of the main ways that you can become a vessel of comfort, turn back to the book of Job, is by doing three things, and they are found in verse 5. Here they are for you note-takers. When you're endeavoring to comfort somebody, all in verse 5, number one, you should seek to strengthen them with your lips. Number two, provide solace with your prayers, your company, or your words, or all of them. And number three, to try to lessen their pain. Really quick, strengthen them, provide solace, and lessen their pain. I've discovered something, that when I am asked to be an ambassador of comfort, I don't have to have all the answers. Uh, I've learned over the years the power of just praying with somebody. Have you? I've had people come up to me and say, do you remember that time you prayed for me? And sometimes it's years later. And frankly, I don't even remember how I prayed or what I prayed for. But it meant the world to them. In that moment, the Holy Spirit was using that prayer to bring comfort to their heart because we were going to the true source of comfort. Now, Job had not sinned, but even if someone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, Galatians 6, 1 through 3, are to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill what? The law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Even if someone were to fall on their face in some terrible sin, and maybe that's you. Maybe you have fallen on your face and you don't even know if God could love you anymore. I have good news for you. God tells his people to restore people who have fallen. Now, of course, that would mean that you're wanting to be restored. You can fight that. But if you desire to be restored, the good news is that God indeed wants you to be restored, and he'll even use his people to bear your burden. In other words, we don't want to stack burdens on people who are down. We want to do what? We want to lift them. And Job's friends, instead of lifting burdens, were putting more burdens on their shoulders. Just think about it. If you have so much on your back that you couldn't take one more straw, it's not wise for us to put something else. Well, maybe this happened because, and put another stack. We don't want to do that. There may be a time and a place for that, but not when someone's about to fall over. I was dialoguing with someone the other day, and um, I was talking about church and spiritual things, and the person responded, yeah, God is on my back. <laughs> and I said, well, you should probably rather have him on your side. Amen? See, almost the way it was put was, yeah, 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 yeah. He's, he's been trying to get my attention. <laughs> well, you, you may want to give it to him. You see, 
when we bring words of strength to people, when we provide solace, when we lessen pain, when you bring a meal to somebody, you guys are awesome about this. this is a, there's a, an incredible meals ministry in this fellowship. Some of you are a part of. You just bring a meal to somebody. You pray with them. Man, it means the world to them that you even thought about them. You send a text and you say, hey, you've been on my heart. I'm praying for you. I had a lady who attends here off and on. She texted me this morning. My, my husband's going into surgery. I'm so scared. Would you please pray? I just simply responded, I'm praying. Texted me three hours later, I'm so grateful. Surgery went well. Thank you for praying. See, we underestimate the power of those things. If I speak, Job 16, 6, my pain is not lessened. If I hold back, what has left me? Job says, you guys have been doing a lot of talking, but if I speak, my pain doesn't go away. If I don't speak, what has left me? I want this to go away. I want my situation to change but it's not. Now Job is gonna add some detail here that will remind us once again that in some significant way Job foreshadows the coming Messiah. Take a look, verse seven. But now Job thinks that God has done this to him. Remember it was the devil, but God allowed it, but Job thinks that God's his enemy, so he says, he says now he, God, has exhausted me. He's worn me out. He's debilitated me. You could translate it. Thou hast laid waste all my company, NIV. You've devastated my entire household. Thou hast shriveled me up. It has become a witness, and my leanness rises up against me. It testifies to my face. Job is exhausted. Earlier in Job 1, when all the calamity happened to Job's family and estate, he said in Job 1.21, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember that, Job 121? There's even a song, right? Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm almost afraid to sing that song. <laughs> Every blessing. And then it says, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say. Well, Job chose that in Job 121. But now he's saying, oh, that hurts. Yes, I said, Lord, you gave and you've taken away. Blessed be your name, but Job's still not over it. And sometimes we say something in a moment of worship, in a moment of prayer that sounds so strong and so spiritual. Wow, look at him, look at her, so spiritual. <laughs> and then you go home and you're like, Lord, I'm not going to sing it anymore. You give and take away. No! Give! <laughs> give and give some more. Give relief. You've shriveled me up. People look at me and they say, man, that dude's in trouble. I'm lean. Maybe Job's ribs were showing. Maybe he couldn't keep food down. He had had a fever. He had the boils. He had so many terrible things going on. Probably lost a bunch of weight. Maybe he looked in the mirror and went, Ah! Is that really me? Some of you are saying, I've done that recently. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Can you imagine, though, that Job looking at his body? You know, maybe he was a fit man. Maybe 
you know, he was healthy looking and now he's a disaster. Not only has he virtually lost everything, but his physical appearance is also a witness to others. He might say, all I have to do is look in the mirror. I'm shriveled up. I'm lean. I'm diseased. Oh God, why? The source of both the attacks on Job in Job 1 and 2 was Satan. But Job doesn't know everything that went on that we read about that was happening in the heavenly places. Job thinks that God is the source and that God is angry with him. He thinks that God is mad and God's pouring out his wrath. Is God mad at Job? No. And sometimes I think some of us think that God is mad at us when he's not. Do you remember when Moses, the second water miracle, God says, I want you to, first time you struck the rock, this time I want you to go speak to the rock and water will come out. And Moses had had enough. Moses had reached the breaking point like a parent on a long trip in a car with the kids in the back. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Shut up! I'm going to turn this car around. We had some times in the car with my kids where they'd start going at it, and I told them we're going to go get a burrito or something, and then I'd say, there's no burrito. We're going home. And No Miguel's for you. Wait a minute, that means I can't have any either. Maybe I should just buy one for myself and eat it in front of them. Revels. So Moses strikes the rock, right? But he strike it a couple of times. And the water flowed out. And God said to Moses, come into my office. I told you to speak to the rock. Now, uh, many of you have heard that we believe Moses was acting out prophecy. Jesus was struck once for the salvation of the world, now you just have to call upon the name of the Lord. So it's probably a prophetic picture. But God also said to Moses, you misrepresented me, I was not angry with the people. And by you doing that, you led them to believe that I was angry with them and I wasn't. Many of you have a view of God that you think God's mad at you all the time. Can I tell you, he's not. He loves you. So much that he gave his only son. His son continually intercedes for his people, pouring out grace upon grace upon grace into our lives. I am not saying that God doesn't discipline us at times, but if he disciplines us, it's for our good that we might share in his holiness and not get hit or run over by a truck or a train. Everybody with me? It's protective. But Job has this view of God right now that He can't understand. Jesus was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like from one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. This is an accounting term. It means a reckoning of value upon him. People looked at Jesus when he had been whipped and was falling under the weight of the cross. And then when he was dying on the cross, The religious leaders especially thought he's under the curse of God. There's no way that the Messiah should be suffering in that way. He's going to take the seat of David. He's going to overcome the Romans. This is not the way it should work. It does not fit with my religious worldview. And do you know what it caused many of them to do? Reject God in human flesh. 
he came to his own, and his own would not receive him. Why? Because they had a preconceived notion about how the Messiah should fulfill the scriptures that they understood. And they couldn't see past it. Their pride kept them away. His anger has torn me, Job thinks God is mad at him, and hunted me down, verse 9. He has gnashed at me with his teeth. My adversary glares at me. Job pictures God as a vicious predator, hunting him down, gnashes his teeth, glares at him, just waiting for the next strike. Sometimes I think that's what we think. God's just waiting to beat me over the head with a family Bible the minute I get out of line. Whack! (laughs) But God is not our adversary. He's our advocate. Amen? We have an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's Satan. God is our advocate, not our adversary. But Job is at a place subjectively in his experience and emotion where life makes it feel like God is his adversary. You ever been there before? Okay, I know God loves me. I know he's my advocate. But what in the world's going on? Lord, sometimes subjectively in our experience and feeling, We feel like God may be our adversary, but he's not. This is why we need to be reminded about the truth. Because if we start seeing things the wrong way, we're going to end up in a bad spot. He loved me and gave himself up for me. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For by these he has granted to us, 2 Peter 1, 4, precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Job, his life, the community, everybody looks at him and says his life is a disaster. He's probably sitting on the ash heap for a, a time outside the city gate and people are walking by and thinking the guy is a disaster. He must have done something wrong. He goes on. He says, they have gaped at me, verse 10, with their mouth. They have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. They have massed themselves against me. People jeer, New Living Translation, and laugh at me. They slap my cheek in contempt. A mob gathers against me. Now, Job, remember, in Job 2.8, he's got the boils and he, he's taking a piece of broken pottery and he's scraping them, probably scraping the pus, and he's sitting on an ash heap and his friends throw dust up in the air and he's outside the city gate and people come walking by and now we're getting a little bit more detail about what happened. You know what happened? Mobs began to gather around Job and say, you, they gaped their mouth. I had to look up Gape, it's actually something used in Psalm 22. I'll show you in a moment in the New King James. But to gape is to do something like this. It's to open your mouth wide like. And that's what they were doing to Job. They were walking by him in his misery and going, oh, Job. Can you picture the teenagers coming by? Job, look at his boils. Stop a picture of the boils. Selfie. <laughs> Job's boils. 
And it got so bad that apparently people came by and started slapping him in the face. And apparently Job was too weak to defend himself. Can you imagine a mob coming around you and you're sick and you have a fever and you're devastated with grief and they encircle you and begin to smack you in the face? And you were the greatest man of the East! And now what are you? A joke. An absolute joke. Teenagers just walk by after school, just have a little fun with old Job. Wow. Would you turn to the next book? It's Psalm 22. I want to show you this incredible prophecy about the Messiah and show you how Jesus is the greater Job. Take a look. This is Psalm 22, beginning in verse 6. The passerbys, I want you to think about them and think about this prophecy of the Messiah. I am a worm, 22.6, in Psalm 22.6, and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me snare at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb, verse 9. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I, I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. If you have the New King James, it says they gape at me with their mouths, just like we saw in Job like a raging and roaring lion. This is why I've told you that Jesus is the greater Job. We can see these pictures. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a posture. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Thou dost lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers, a mob, if you will, has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Many of you have studied this before, written a thousand years before Jesus was born and crucified. Very detailed what happened to him during his passion and on the cross. Back to Job, and we'll finish it. Do you see that things that we may not have thought about in the book of Job start to foreshadow the coming greater Job, Jesus? Things that happened to Job. He was an innocent sufferer. He was great and then all of a sudden calamity struck. He was innocent. Why was he suffering? God hands me over to ruffians. Verse 11, Job 16. And tosses me into the hands of the wicked. They formed a mob. They beat Job. They slapped him in the face. All foreshadowing what was coming in the life of Jesus. Job had lost all his dignity physical and emotional toil coalesce in a terrible marriage on one innocent righteous man. Job has become the punching bag of the East instead of the greatest man of the East. Man, it is so easy to fall from grace. We've seen in the last couple of years some major pastors have some very public falls. And when you see that, it's very sad and being a pastor myself, 
it gets my attention very quickly. And it makes me realize that we have to be careful and guard our lives. I was going to take you to Matthew 27, but let me just read it for you because I think you, you know these verses. They released Barabbas for them, but having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium. They gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. After twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They, uh, and a reed in his right hand, they knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took a scarlet robe off him, put his own garments back on him, and led him away to crucify him. Later in Matthew 27, the robbers who'd been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land to the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Mark 14, 65 says, some began to spit at Jesus to blindfold him blindfold him and beat him with their fists and they said to him prophesy and the officers received him with slaps in the face mark 16 i'm sorry mark 14:65 and finally the prophecy in isaiah 50 when it says i gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard i did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting these are all prophecies about jesus that came to pass Job says, as we wind down, I was at ease, all was with, with me, all was well with me, uh, NIV, we're back in Job 16, 12, but he, God, shattered me. He has grasped me by the back, uh, by the neck, and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. You can imagine like a big, powerful being grabbing uh, Job by the back of the neck. Imagine if it were you picking him up off the ground and shaking him like he was a doll. His arrows... That is God's, this is how Job is seeing things, even though he's not correct. Surround me. Without mercy, he splits or slashes my kidneys open. You guys will remember that when Jesus was being whipped, uh, medical experts say that the cat of nine tails would open you up to expose your organs. That's how devastating just the whipping was. My kidneys are open, says Job. He pours out my gall on the ground. This is gross. You may not have a uh, cookie later, but... But gall is the, the contents of the gallbladder or bile. He breaks through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. I feel like a target. God's got his target on me, and he just takes another arrow, and I get wound after wound after wound. I've sewed sackcloth 15 over my skin. I thrust my horn into the dust. This idea is he's so grievously wounded, he's trying to put sackcloth over his scabby skin. Some of the wounds are trying to heal, and the horn in the dust speaks of his strength. And they say animals who have been, uh, become the target of a predator can be at such a point where they will actually take their face and bury it in the ground or bury their horns in the ground. And some people that we've seen and sometimes you see them driving out of uh, shopping centers. They're so beaten up and devastated by life, they can't even look up anymore. Can't even look at you. That's Job. Once a proud, spiritual, wealthy man, 
He says, my face is flushed. It's inflamed from weeping. Deep darkness is on my eyelids. I've got dark circles around my eyes. Although there's no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. It says of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, 9, his grave was assigned with the wicked, with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, Isaiah 53, 9, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But it pleased the Lord to crush him because Jesus, his suffering was for our redemption. And Job then says, O earth, do not cover my blood. I'm praying that my blood will be a witness. Don't cover it. Don't bury it. I pray it'll cry out for revenge or justice is the idea. We see this in Genesis 4 when it comes to the blood of Abel. And there be no resting place for my cry. I want it open and exposed. And then all of a sudden, out of almost nowhere, Job says, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. Have you ever gotten there before where you came up with 17 different ways to fix what's going wrong in your life? Self-help, I'm going to do this, I'm going to improve, I'm going I'm to do this, and then all of a sudden, life got to a point where you had to just look up. You know, that's a pretty good place to be. And Job paused here and said, even now, even with all of this, Job has not lost his faith in God or his hope. He says, my witness is where? Look at your Bible. My witness is where? In heaven. And my hope or my advocate is on high. What's he saying? I thought God was his enemy. I thought he was saying that God made him his punching bag and Job was his punching bag and the the bullets and arrows were coming. Now, all of a sudden, he says he has an advocate in heaven? The answer is yes. Job may not understand all of it, but he seems to be implying that the only way that he can be rescued is God. And that's true of all of us. We all have to come to a point where life causes us to look up and say, Oh, Lord, be my advocate. I don't want to have an adversarial relationship with you. Sin separates us from God. I need an advocate. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's 1 John 2, 1 and 2. You and I have an advocate. He is on your side. And maybe what the book of Job is doing right now, Bible students, is beginning to delve into the mystery of the Trinity and how God the Son, our advocate, will be crushed by the wrath, if you will, of God the Father to satisfy that wrath. And the answer will be in God. See, God saves us from his wrath by his own intervention of an advocate. And the advocate is God the Son. That is mysterious, isn't it? It's hard to fathom, but don't get confused. God the Father so loved you that he did what? He sent his son. See, God loves you, and God found a way for you to be reconciled through the suffering of the son. And so Job says, I know I have an advocate, and you and I do too. My friends are my scoffers. My eyes, my eye weeps to God. And then he says, oh, that I might plead with God as a man 
with his neighbor. We'll save verse 22 for next time. Would you pray with me? Father, we had to move quickly through those uh, final verses, but thank you for the book of Job and thank you for an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Thank you that Job foreshadows the greater Job, Jesus, the ultimate innocent sufferer. When we think about Job sitting outside the city gate, mocked and ridiculed, encircled, slapped in the face, suffering, asking deep questions, why, why, why? It's an amazing picture. Job couldn't have realized that he was foreshadowing Jesus, but he was. And here, in a, in a very difficult, dark chapter, all of a sudden, Job says, I know I have an advocate on high. Later, in a few chapters, he'll say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Thank you, Lord. Oh, we're not going to make sense of all the twists and turns of this life, but one thing we know, we have an advocate. And the way we can really know that is we take a look at his hands, his pierced hands, his wounded side, his nail-pierced feet. We may be wrestling with some doubt tonight, but we have an advocate, and he proved it by coming to live in our pain, to go to the cross for us, to bring us ultimate comfort, true comfort in Christ. Now, brother and sister, um, tonight, as you let the word of God just minister to your heart, if you don't know this true comforter, if you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you want to know this peace and comfort, you've got to just ask for it. It's already been paid for in full. He's already paid the price, but you've got to make it your own, and it's something just this simple. Would you pray it? Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for being the ultimate innocent sufferer. Thank you for taking my punishment and bearing my shame at the cross. Thank you for the redemption that you paid in your death. And thank you for your resurrection. I believe tonight, I ask you to be my Savior, my Lord. Thank you that you're my advocate. If you've been backsliding or maybe life has thrown you some curveballs and you feel like you've taken some steps back, He's here, he's on your side, he loves you. And I think he would bid you tonight just to lay aside the burdens and come to him. Give the burdens to him tonight. He'll carry them for you. And Father, for this precious fellowship and each precious person that comes to hear from you on these Wednesday nights, I pray that your voice has been heard. I pray that your people have been encouraged. I pray that they've found maybe more depth of comfort. And I pray that you would just minister to them uh, in their daily lives and use us, Lord. May we not just be comforted to be comfortable. May we become comforted to be comforters. And I ask that you'll empower us to do just that by your grace, by your power, and for your glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Would you